everyone. Welcome, welcome to show number 12 on Crypto Voices. My name is Matthew Majinskis, your host, I'm here with Fernando Ulrich from Brazil. Hi, Matthew. And today our guest is Eric Voorhees. For most of you in the space, Eric needs no introduction. He's a serial entrepreneur in the crypto space. Starting from 2011, Eric has been involved or founded many Bitcoin and crypto ventures, including BitInstant, Coinapult, and Satoshi Dice, among others. And perhaps most notably, Shapeshift, one of the easiest and fastest crypto asset exchanges in the space where no account is needed. Eric, welcome to Crypto Voices. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Happy to have you. I'd like to start out uh, just with a general sort of marketing educational question uh, on Bitcoin and crypto. We were talking a little bit about this uh, pre-show. I think it's interesting, you know, all of us here on this show, we have perhaps some similar backgrounds uh, and interests. Um, I don't say that to compare our, uh, our pedigrees or, or a business uh, experience in the space. Certainly you have ascended the ladder faster than most, which is uh, to be commended. But, uh, you know, I, for example, uh, grew up in the U.S., but for family reasons, family history, I went to Eastern Europe after university. Uh, Fernando's from Brazil. He uh, studied in Europe, and uh, I believe you both worked in Dubai around the same time. So we've seen we've seen uh, you know quote foreign financial systems, banking systems. We've had uh, a variety of interests in in monetary policy and getting to the bottom of the business cycle. Certainly after the slide in 2008, that's actually where I met Fernando. It was at a, a Mises conference uh, in Salamanca in Spain. Uh, but I just say all that uh, to, to say we've had, I think we have similar interests. Uh, I started following Bitcoin and reading about it in early 2011, uh, similar as, as yourself, I believe. And um, so I bring, I bring all that up uh, just to say, you know, I think our learning curves are much faster than the average Joe, you know, the average TV news anchor, the average school teacher. Uh, we, we, we just have, uh, we're enthusiasts and we have tremendous interest in this space. Can you distill for us, in your experience, in your six years in the space, one or two lessons or selling points, which, you know, when you're trying to introduce, trying to explain Bitcoin and crypto to the average person, why, why should they care about Bitcoin? Yeah, um, although I think my answer might be a little depressing. And that is basically um, one thing I've learned from trying to teach people about Bitcoin for six years is they, they will listen and they will smile and nod their head. Um, some of them will be a little interested and you can give them every great reason why this technology is important and you can explain it very clearly and on the right level for that person. But nothing gets them interested other than them seeing the price go crazy, which is kind of tragic. Uh, and so I, I think today, these days, I don't spend as much time trying to get the next marginal person interested in Bitcoin by talking to them. Um, they get interested because they see a price movement and then they have to have sort of a, like an intrinsic desire to learn more. And I'm always happy to talk about it with anyone that wants to. Um, but I, I don't really try to proselytize it as much as I used to. What about the, um, the sort of general adoption uh in this space as far as, you know, will people know that they're using Bitcoin or, or will they not? When I, when I start to introduce and, and do talks about Bitcoin over here in Eastern Europe or even friends in the US still, today uh, it's infinitely easier 
uh, and more understandable than when we started, you know, learning about it in 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. um, one can only presume that that same order of magnitude, if not more, will compound in the next two, three, five years. I mean, are you optimistic? Although actually, let me, let me challenge that a little bit because uh, while some things are certainly easier today, like it's much easier to store crypto, like in a hardware wallet or something, it's much easier to buy crypto. There's more professional services for sure. The industry also has blossomed in, in a thousand different directions. And so there's a lot more complexity to it. A lot more companies involved, a lot more specific assets involved, um, a lot more concepts and terms. So I'm not sure if it's actually an easier thing to get your head around today than it was back when we learned about it. Are people gonna know in five years that they're using Bitcoin and blockchain assets? Or do you think that maybe that, you know, just the average person won't know, it'll just be whatever's, you know, whatever button is easiest to push? Um, I'm not sure. So that, that's, been, that's been sort of this theory since the old days of Bitcoin that, that uh, someday in the future, people will use Bitcoin without knowing it. And that, that's very possible. I can see how that could happen. But I haven't seen any tendency toward that. Um, I have not seen any popular service used yet in which people are using Bitcoin without knowing it. Um, I think it's just a lot more people know Bitcoin and, and, and the, the way to use Bitcoin, the wallets specifically in the exchanges have become so much easier and, and cleaner and more professional that it, it, it's becoming quite easy to know what Bitcoin is and to use Bitcoin as Bitcoin. Uh, so I think that's a win. Um, you know, I, I don't know what, what the future will look like and if that becomes totally abstracted and people just send, you know, some kind of units without realizing what that means. But ultimately, if you're, if you're talking about Bitcoin from a money perspective, uh, people, people have to be transferring value around in, in some unit. So it's either dollars or, or a dollar equivalent of Bitcoin or it's Bitcoin itself. Um, and I'm one of the people that has the crazy notion that fiat currencies are actually gonna lose to crypto over the long term. And so more and more people are actually gonna be using uh, cryptocurrencies as themselves. Uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be abstracted away. People may not understand the intricacies of a blockchain, but they will know that they're sending, you know, 50 Dash or, or 1.34 Bitcoin to someone and they'll be comfortable with those terms. Let me jump in, Eric, and, and follow up on this on this question. So do you see any, right now, do you see that, or do you think Bitcoin right now is missing a killer app? Or do you think money by itself, being money or trying to be a, a currency is its killer app? So killer apps aren't really black and white. There are, you know, there's a whole gradient and a whole scale of how popular a certain use case can be. Uh, the usage as money has certainly been a killer app thus far of Bitcoin. There are millions of people around the world now using Bitcoin as money, transferring around to pay for things, to hold value. Uh, so that, that's fantastic. Um, and we'll, we'll see how that continues into the future. Let's jump into uh, the business side here. I think one of your most notable projects, and uh, I commend you on, on how simple and easy to use it is, is, uh, is Shapeshift Digital Asset Exchange, where you don't need an account. One of your more recent projects that you've launched is Prism. Mm -hmm. Would you mind uh, just explaining that a little bit, how it works and, and why you chose to launch it? Yeah, uh, so Prism is a project of Shapeshift, uh, wholly owned by Shapeshift. And basically it's a way for a person to get exposure to a basket of digital assets 
without having to trust a third party and without having to download a bunch of wallets and synchronize a bunch of blockchains and deal with all the key management themselves. So um, the problem that it's trying to solve is basically if someone today says, all right, this crypto stuff is cool, I want to put $10,000 into it, um, they have two options. They can, uh, they can download all the wallets and synchronize them, which if you're technically sophisticated isn't too hard, but it, it's, it's a lot of work no matter what. And if you want to rebalance the assets you're holding, you have to change the infrastructure that you've built. So it's really not convenient. Or what most people do is they just put their money at an exchange and they leave it there and they buy the assets they want and they just leave them all there, which is a lot easier but very dangerous for all the reasons that we're familiar with. So Prism um, is really meant to be safer than either of those options, uh, safer than handling all your own keys because you, you, there's less ways to screw up uh, and easier because you don't have to handle all the keys and you don't have to uh, sign up with an exchange account or anything like that. So we're, we're trying to win on both those fronts, safer and easier uh, to build a, a custom portfolio of assets. And the way that we have done that is built entirely on Ethereum. So Prism is, is arguably the, the first um, commercially released financial application built on Ethereum smart contracts. Uh, and so it's, it's really been interesting to, to see sort of the theoretical coolness of smart contracts, which are kind of, kind of a buzzword. Um, and having built something with them now, I am very confident that smart contracts are absolutely uh, useful and valid and that they are going to revolutionize many different areas of finance. Yeah, that's, that's great news to hear right, right there because I think, uh, you know, the word smart contract, it's a lot of negative PR, positive PR, and obviously there have been some, some poorly programmed smart contracts or, or dumb programs or however they uh, turn out to be. But I think uh, it's, it's really uh, nice to see that you've, uh, you guys have built a, an efficient one and an easy to use one. I only had one question about it. It's more from a finance or investment standpoint. Is it true that basically the underlying risk then with a Prism portfolio that anyone is the most risk that they're taking on would be the underlying value of, uh, of Ether. Because if, you know, if, if you had a, say a Bitcoin and a Dash, you know, 50, 50, uh, smart contract on Prism and they both went up, they both doubled against the dollar during the period, but, but Ether fell, uh, by half against the dollar, wouldn't you, at least in dollar terms, you probably would be, you would be neutral at that point. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That's a totally valid point. So all the portfolios built in Prism, um, are measured against the Ethereum that is put in. So you're using Ethereum as your base currency, essentially, when you're using it. Uh, so for, for the billions of dollars of Ethereum holders that are now out there, many of them are going to be fine measuring their performance against Ethereum itself. If you are holding dollars and you want to get into this stuff, um, you do need to realize that whatever the Prism portfolio does, it, it also is being converted through Ethereum, and, and so Ethereum's movement is going to affect your ultimate dollar performance. So it depends sort of what asset you're coming from. Um, Prism will also be uh, ported over to Rootstock when that's available, and so then people can use either Bitcoin or Ethereum um, to create these portfolios. Okay. Are, are there longer-term plans where eventually your underlying you know, risk asset could be, a, could be the dollar or another fiat asset? We don't do anything with fiat. We hate fiat. <laughs> it's dirty and terrible and needs to go away. So we, we just don't touch it as a company. Okay. 
another project I'd like to ask you about um, is is salt. And I'm not sure, uh, I saw you tweet about this recently. I'm not sure if this is uh, hot off the press or not. It seems like a fresh project. It seems like a very interesting project. Again, an ERC-20 token and smart contract type of uh, platform. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Salt is uh, a lending platform where all the people that hold crypto around the world can uh, deposit the crypto with Salt and take out a fiat loan against that as collateral. So that, that sounds really simple, but it's really useful. So um, imagine someone who now has half a million dollars of crypto, which is quite a few people at this point, and they want to buy a house. Um, they have this crappy choice where, okay, they actually want to realize some economic gain from what they've earned, but they don't want to sell the crypto for two reasons. One is because it creates a tax event and then a whole bunch of money is going to the government. And two, because uh, they are bullish on the sector in general and, and they don't want to miss out on the future appreciation. So SALT solves both those problems. You lend your crypto to SALT, SALT lends you fiat for whatever down payment on your house. And then uh, as long as you pay back the fiat over time, you get all the crypto back and it never gets sold. You, you don't miss out on any of the appreciation and there's no tax event from that. So that's the basic concept behind SALT. And um, they, they do have a token which represents membership in SALT. So the, to, to get these loans, you basically have to be a member. And to be a member, you have to hold SALT tokens. So that's sort of how the system works. Now changing the subject a little bit, Eric, uh, we have just finished a, well, let's say one chapter in the lengthy Bitcoin scaling debate. So we're gonna have SegWit activated in I think a week or so, so by the 23rd or 24th of August. But it, it, let's put aside for a moment all the heated debate and perhaps zoom out and take a wider perspective. How would you evaluate this, this past three, four, or even since you began your journey in Bitcoin, how would you evaluate this, this scaling issue, how it has evolved in the past, in the past three, four, five years? Yeah, uh, so of all the chat, so like back in 2011 when, when a lot of us Bitcoiners spent hours arguing with each other on the forums about what this all would turn into, we imagined all sorts of threats and challenges to Bitcoin, uh, you know, mostly governments or, or hackers or whatever. Um, none of us really predicted that the biggest challenge to Bitcoin in its first 10 years would be the infighting of its own community related to a relatively small um, technical difference of opinion. And so over the last two years, the Bitcoin community has really tragically um, split into two or more groups that do not agree about, about how to scale Bitcoin in the short term. And, and the, one of the stupid things about it is that most all of them agree on how to scale it in the, in the long and medium term, um, but they just don't agree on how to, how to handle the next couple of years, either with, uh, with a block size increase or, or with SegWit, essentially. So um, it's been really tragic because I think a ton of people's energy is going now to just vilifying the other side. and It's turned into this tribalistic um, war where people are more interested in in finding the worst arguments of the other side, highlighting those, and then tearing them down and insulting the people behind them. Um, so, I've come to I've come to look much more favorably on hard forks 
um, today than I would have a few years ago. We've, uh, namely because they allow a community that can't get along and can't reconcile a difference to split and to go into two different directions. Um, and it's, it's tragic to see that happen. And in the short term, it can be really damaging for the asset and can cause a bunch of volatility and confusion and, and brand decay. But in the long term, I actually think it's healthy. Uh, so the, um, the Bitcoin cash fork that happened at the beginning of August, uh, a lot of people predicted doom and gloom from that. But I, I th and while I don't support that fork personally, um, I'm kind of glad that it happened. It allowed those who really didn't like SegWit at all and really wanted a much larger block right away to have a chain of their own uh, with all the same lineage and history of the Bitcoin that they all know and love. And, um, and then there's another fork coming up in November when the SegWit 2X uh, fork occurs. And that'll be a much more interesting fork because as far as I can tell, the majority of miners and businesses support that fork, which was not the case in Bitcoin Cash. But again, you're going to get two groups that disagree with each other spl splitting off. And ultimately the market will decide which of all of these forks is, is the real Bitcoin. And it'll allow people to get back to building things instead of arguing with each other. Um, and the same phenomenon happened with Ethereum. So when they did their fork a little over a year ago, um, that was really difficult for Ethereum. It, it collapsed the price for a while, but the bickering community was able to go into two different directions. And now both sides of the chain, Ethereum and Ethereum Classic are both m worth more than Ethereum was pre-split. So I, I think that's great. Um, and while it's a contentious issue, I think that's the only way it gets resolved at this point. Now the, the Segwit2x, uh, it seems to me, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that lately it has lost some of its momentum. I mean, it's, it's GitHub repositories kind of inactive or rather inactive. The same I see with developers mailing lists, uh, BTC1 or Segwit2x. And do you really see this hard for coming? Do you think it, it will indeed take place? And if, in, if indeed is the case, if that is the case, we will have another hard fork November. Do you anticipate this one will be, can be messier than Bitcoin Cash? Um, from all the people who agreed to the New York agreement, which was basically um, most miners and many of the Bitcoin companies coming together and agreeing on a compromise in which both SegWit and a slightly larger block would happen. Um, none of those people with the exception of via BTC and, and perhaps arguably Bitcoin.com, everyone else still seems to be advocating for it and going along with, with what they agreed to do. Um, and if that continues, then yeah, I mean, it's, it's not only that the hard fork might happen, the hard fork will happen and it will have a majority and a, a super majority of minor support. So yeah, that's gonna look a lot different than the one that happened uh, a few weeks ago with, with Bitcoin Cash. Um, it'll be very, very contentious, just like the Bitcoin Cash one was. And we'll, we'll see where it ends up. Um, but I think it, it'll be the only way that the argument actually gets settled. Now, let me ask you something. We, we as enthusiasts in cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin, we dwell upon all the, the positives and the advantages and how revolutionary and, and how adventurous it is, especially when we compare to fiat currency which I totally agree with you, it's dirty, we need to get away with it. And we need to do away with it. But uh, 
What would you say if we analyze Bitcoin crypto on a fundamental level, especially Bitcoin? What would you say is perhaps its greatest flaw? Bitcoin's greatest flaw. I mean, the greatest, its greatest challenge, I think, is twofold. One is just that it started with zero users. And so as something that requires a network effect to go from zero users to a, a huge network effect is really hard. And it's amazing that it's gotten so far. That's been its first challenge, but I think it's proven that it can overcome that. The second challenge is, is the, uh, the scaling one, because as it, as it accomplishes that first challenge, it runs very quickly into the second one. Um, fees in Bitcoin have, gone, have gotten to a prohibitive level for many use cases. You know, when, when I got involved, people would send each other Bitcoin all the time for a, a beer at the bar. And it was a great way to introduce people to Bitcoin. You know, if you want to send some friends a couple dollars, um, it, it made sense to do so. And that was a great way to get adoption. Now it's kind of silly to do that, to send someone a dollar when you pay 50 cents in fees. Uh, and sometimes the fees can be a lot higher than that. So that's, that's its biggest challenge. I mean, there's, there's technical reasons why it works that way. And there's technical solutions um, to help address that over time. But those are the biggest problems that Bitcoin faces. Let's uh, move forward from that topic. I, I think it's a question I'll ask is somewhat related, but um, let's get a little bit more into the economics. Our podcast is trying to be about crypto economics. And um, one of, at the, at the risk of going too much back into the weeds about the scaling or, or whatnot, uh, one of the writers that I really enjoy, we both really enjoy, his name's Conrad Graf. Uh, he lives in Germany. Uh, he's, he's, he's great. Yeah. He's written a lot. Um, we've narrated some of his stuff on our show and... Um, and he, he did an interview with Evan Fagard in, uh, about a year and a half ago, 2016, which sort of crystallized a lot of things for me. Uh, one of the things he says is he, he says that, first of all, fee market, uh, which we talk about the transaction fees that miners uh, collect for including transactions into blocks. It's, the word fee market is wrong. You know, we don't use, we don't call it, you know, the gold price for mining market. Uh, or the mining cost market. We don't call it the oil cost per barrel market. We just call it the oil market. We call it the gold market. Like the product is the market. So he, he says at risk of it, it sounds verbose, but you know, the service that miners provide is transaction inclusion services. Paying a fee is uh, a fee to get your transaction into the next block. And it's a very interesting way to look at it. I don't know if you've given any thought to it, but... Um, what do you think about changing the name ever <laughs> from fee market to something like, and again, this is a verbose, I think, uh, proposal from him, but you know, something like transaction inclusion market? Um, I don't know what the right name would be for it. I think at this point it's become so commonly referred to as a fee market that to try to change it would be kind of futile. Uh, I mean, generally the, <laughs> the problem with this, with this debate is that um, all the sides have some truth to, to what they're saying. Uh, the people that say that there has to be a fee in order to pay miners, are, they are correct. Uh, and they will be more correct in the future as the Bitcoin mining reward declines. Um, people on the other side who say that when fees are too high, it starts to choke off the network are, are also correct. And what that equilibrium should be and at what point along Bitcoin's growth curve, the equilibrium, sh equilibrium should, be, should be what variable? Those are really hard questions and they can't be answered with some academic paper. 
they are questions of trade-offs that, that uh, have to take into consideration all the personal preferences of all the market participants involved, which is a, a vastly complex system and it cannot be understood uh, in any simple way. So I, th I think the one, the one simple truth, however, is that uh, Bitcoin is a market-based money, which means it exists in a market and it will compete with other market-based monies, um, of which there are more and more now. And if Bitcoin, for whatever reason, becomes um, uncompetitive, it will fade away and lose market share to other, other assets, other cryptocurrencies. Where that point is, n nobody knows. But um, anyone who believes that just because Bitcoin is the biggest and was the first guarantees that it will always be that uh, is deluding themselves. I'd like to push again, uh, still on this topic, uh, and you may revert to the same answer, that's fine. Uh, again, regarding maybe some terminology or at least uh, focusing on what's important. SegWit obviously was, for technical reasons, was, was very uh, important for layer two technologies to, 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 to work and it's, you know, activation will, uh, will enable that, which is great. I think everybody is for layer two technology in one way or another. It, it, as a simplified statement, I think you can make that. Yeah, but, um, most people are for sure. Yeah, uh, but again, another thing that uh, Conrad Graf pointed out, which again, to me, just crystallizes it, is like, it's not big blocks, it's not small blocks, it's not empty blocks, it's not full blocks. It's just uh, one thing that is still there, regardless, even after SegWit and even after 2X, it's still gonna be there is this threshold that for better or for worse, for hooker by crook, you know, Satoshi as a founder and sort of benevolent dictator, he set in 2010 of one megabyte. So, you know, people say empty blocks or full blocks or big blocks or small blocks. Like when there are a hundred uh, kilobyte transactions uh, in Bitcoin, it didn't mean that there was 900 kilobytes of, of empty space in a block. There's just, the block was hundred kilobytes, that's it. The issue comes when you have this arbitrary limit, it's an economic limit, he's described it as a ceiling, kind of almost like a cartel-like ceiling, um, which, which sets a limit on how many transactions can be included and of course the price or the fees. My question, uh, setting it up that way is this, layer two is gonna come, that's great. So layer two is gonna come, lightning networks are gonna come, side chains are gonna come, other payment channels are gonna come, but still, whether it's one megabyte or two megabytes, there's going to be a limit for on-chain transactions. So again, who is the ultimate arbiter in Bitcoin in determining if transactions should be on-chain or if they should be off-chain? Well, that's sort of a that's sort of a trick question because I think the, kind of the principle of Bitcoin is that there is no ultimate arbiter of things; that its incentives are done to allow order to emerge from the market participants that are using the system. Um, the question of how many transactions should fit in a block can't, it is, a matter, is a matter of opinion. It, it, it depends on how someone weights the various trade-offs. And I, I think there are a number of people who believe that um, they can prove what the optimal number of big of transactions in a block is, and that happens to be the one megabyte that was set arbitrarily, you know, eight years ago, which I think is a little silly. Um, nobody knows what that should be. It should probably emerge from the market participants in some way, and I don't know what the what the right way is for that. But it is very much just an arbitrary limit uh, that is going to cause perverse incentives if it if it cannot adjust or move um, in response to to how the system is growing. So 
that's not sure if that's a great answer, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Do you think that there will ever be an unacceptable level of centralization in Bitcoin? And conversely, do you ever think that there will be an ideal level of decentralization? No. Um, and, and that's a good question because I think some Bitcoiners believe that uh, Bitcoin should be perfectly decentralized, um, which would mean every user is their own node. And it would even mean every user is one hash of the mining network so that mining was also perfectly decentralized. Um, I think that's a really flawed way of looking at it. The, the benefit of decentralization is not that a system has to be perfectly decentralized, but that it allows uh, people to, to opt out and to do what they want at the edges of the system without someone telling them they can't do so. So the, the ideal number of Bitcoin nodes for a world of 6 billion people is not 6 billion nodes. Uh, it is some amount less than that. I, I definitely don't think that everyone should run a full node. I think that's absurd because while you get a marginal improvement in decentralization by a, a rural African farmer running their, their full node, uh, it's vastly more costly for them. So you, so you get a huge decrease in marginal efficiency of the system at a very tiny increase in marginal decentralization. Um, and that, that gets worse and worse the more you take that example to the extreme. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And I think uh, talking about unacceptable centralization or uh, ideal decentralization, it's almost a, a fascist versus a socialist argument. That's at the, you know, looking at the extremes, not calling anybody a fascist or a socialist in this argument. But I mean, you know, there are ideals that people hold and sometimes we get carried away one way or another where our principles uh, lie. Yeah, I mean, the, the ideal should not be a money system that is perfectly or mathematically perfect in its decentralization. The ideal should be a, a money system that is able to outcompete fiat. That should be the goal. That should be, that, that's where the actual value to humanity comes from. And such a system needs a good deal of decentralization for sure. It also needs to be reasonably efficient. It needs to provide its service at a reasonably low cost so that it actually can outcompete the status quo. Um, this is one of the problems with the block size debate, I think, is that people have become, they've become zealots about uh, a technical feature of the broader platform and they've lost sight of the bigger picture, which is helping to build a, a Bitcoin that actually can take over the world. Now, Eric, I, I, I think I fully agree with you, your take and your view on, on bitcoins and crypto in general role in the future and how, it, how it's a, I view it as a legacy to humanity, to mankind. And I, I truly believe it is once we get rid of all this fiat currency and, and the fraud of banking and monetary system that we have today, this will be a, a blessing for, for all of humanity. Now, let me ask you this. When, when did you come to this conclusion? Was there any click moment when you, when you thought, wow, this, is, this really is something truly, truly revolutionary and no, not many people nowadays realize what this truly means? Yeah, well, so that, that answer goes back to before Bitcoin, um, actually when I was in Dubai, which apparently was the same time you were there. And uh, so you as well would have watched the whole global financial crisis unfold um, sort of from across the seas. 
And during that time, this was you know late 2008, um, I became very aware that m money itself was a, a product of the economy, that it was just another good. It was just the name for the good that is most commonly traded for. And that uh, if, if a market economy doesn't work with central planning of shoes or central planning of cars or of food, uh, it sure as hell doesn't work very well with central planning of money. So that, that was a very eureka type moment for me when I started realizing that. Um, but I had no good answer for it and I had no way that, to think of how that would ever be addressed because the only alternative money at the time was gold, which is a great form of money but is really inconvenient for modern payments, especially digital in a digital economy. Um, because of course you can digitize gold and have digital gold tokens, but those, the gold is always held by someone somewhere. And so a government can go and shut down that organization. And so that background is what, what led me to immediately see the value of Bitcoin when it came about, because I, I realized that because it was decentralized and there was no central person to shut down, no central warehouse to be seized, that as long as it was efficient, uh, it was actually going to inevitably take over the world, not just maybe, but inevitably, because it was just simply a, a better system. Now we've seen, I've, I've watched and listened to your debate with Peter Schiff, and I, I love Peter Schiff, he opened my eyes, especially the same with you when I, yeah, same, same with me, yeah. when I was in Dubai and watching all the, the crisis unfold and seeing the, the business cycle theory in practice there, and I worked in the elevator industry. And but it's incredible how the, he and also Jim Rickards and other gold bugs they cling to this idea that gold is the only money and materiality or tangibility is something really important and a fundamental quality of a good money mm -hmm. and it isn't and I think it's actually the very opposite I think it's the, it's the fundamental flaw of a good money at least in the digital age. Yep. But he still clings to this idea. And it seems to me, and gold bugs are missing this, the first asset to be completely demonetized, and perhaps this is a, a bold assertion to make, but I think gold is going to be first demonetized by Bitcoin. Or the first asset that's gonna, that Bitcoin is going to demonetize is gold and then fiat currency. But gold bugs don't, don't see it this way. What do you think? Well, I hope it doesn't demonetize gold. I I still am a, a very big advocate for gold. I think gold and Bitcoin are a great combination because they share many of the important attributes and they have some very different ones as well. One is very new and complicated. One is very old and simple. Uh, and I, th I own gold and silver and uh, hopefully that will, hopefully those metals will retain their, their position as a, an important form of money. It's the f because because they're honest. I mean, they are they are commodities. Um, fiat, I think, is is really the enemy here, and so I, I hope that it's fiat that is destroyed first by by crypto. But you you may be right about that. I think there's some wisdom in that perspective. Regarding the midterm of gold, let's say in this digital world that we are just increasingly hurtling towards, do you see uh, you know Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk ever? Ever truly disrupt disrupting the precious metals market, where uh, you know they say that there's a hundred trillion at least in in today's value in asteroids that are somewhat close to Earth. Do you see it ever happening in our lifetime that 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 those those markets could be disrupted? Hell yeah, yeah. I I mean, yeah. I hope it happens. I I hope that I hope that in my lifetime, uh, 
mankind is mining asteroids, that's cool as hell. Uh, and if it's true that there is that much quantity of, um, of precious metals, then that would totally change the, the price down on Earth. How do you see, now moving on with this discussion with fiat currency and central banks, whenever I give talks here in Brazil and when I write articles or videos or interviews that I give, people ask me, at least people who are listening or understanding or being explained Bitcoin for the first time, whenever people ask me, well, Fernando, do you think that Bitcoin is a great, let's say, the, the biggest competitor for Bitcoin is banks. So banks is going to dis disrupt banks. So whenever I get asked the question if uh, the banks are going to be disrupted by Bitcoin and, and they're the ones losing the most, my answer typically is I actually see Bitcoin first and foremost as a competitor to central banks and their fiat currencies than the banking system as a whole. I don't know that there's much of a meaningful distinction between central banks and the banks and the normal retail and commercial banks. They're all sort of tied up together. The smaller ones have accounts at the larger ones and the larger ones have accounts at the regional ones and those have accounts with the Fed and, and they all kind of do what the Fed wishes and they're all sort of vassals of the Fed. Um, and that's a similar structure, I think, to most countries. So I, I think both will be disrupted uh, together. Uh, and it's amazing that There doesn't seem to be a sense among banks and a, certainly among central banks yet that Bitcoin is any kind of existential threat to them, which is fantastic. I mean, if they thought that, um, they would come down hard on it. But I think a combination of economic ignorance and hubris has prevented them from actually realizing that it's not just that Bitcoin is going to take away some of the services or outcompete some of the things that banks do. It's actually going to outcompete the fundamental core foundation of, of what these banks are built on, which is the, the fiat financial system. Um, to, so thank goodness they haven't realized that yet. It may be a long time. And, and at some point, Bitcoin gets big enough that it doesn't matter anymore. And maybe we're already past that point. Now, uh, another question with, with central banks and fiat currencies. Another point I always make when I give talks, whenever I give talks here in Brazil, is that It's the central banks themselves, in a sense, one of the biggest promoters of cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin specifically. Because when we, when we try to forecast all their future actions, it's all going against individual. It's all going against monetary freedom. We see this with negative interest rates and now the idea of banning cash, outright prohibition of cash, which is ludicrous. But in a sense, if they try to do this, I think it's going to be amazing for the widespread adoption of cryptocurrencies. Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's, that's totally true. And um, it, it actually is going to put central banks in a really awkward position as crypto grows because they've been used to having a captive market. Uh, people have to hold their money in banks uh, to, to a large extent. With a legitimate alternative, people don't have to do that and they're not going to put up with negative interest rates. They're not going to put up with uh, holding their wealth at a entity that could just seize it. And they're certainly not going to put up with um, having every single transaction that they do tracked and recorded for all of time. Um, you know, hopefully the younger generation starts to take privacy more seriously. And I do think the cash is going to get banned. Uh, it's horrible that it will, but it, it probably will. Thank goodness that crypto came around 
so there's actually an alternative now. If, if, if crypto was 20 years later um, and cash got banned, that, that would have been perhaps uh, the, you know, the last moment that monetary freedom could have been held onto. And by then it, it might be too late because in a world without cash, the people had been used to that. Uh, crypto comes around and people would, would vilify it even more. You know, the, <laughs> today it's, it's no more anonymous than cash is, but if cash didn't exist, you can imagine the, the story that would be woven about how evil crypto was. It's ironic how cash nowadays is the last uh, monetary freedom that we have. This is the last refuge of monetary freedom left. Yeah, and it's being vilified like crazy. And presuming that we do have this, uh, this tug of war continue, you know, regulations presumably will, uh, especially if there's another credit crisis or what have you, uh, regulations will continue to, to increase. What do you think about the possibility of, of central banks eventually getting in the Bitcoin business? Uh, Nick Szabo has, uh, has theorized that perhaps Bitcoin, Bitcoin proper is, is destined to become the monetary base or high-powered money, you know, the, 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 the asset that banks are holding at reserve with the central bank. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that would be cool, but I think that banks and central banks will resist that uh, with their last dying breath because the one ultimate power they have is the power of, of creating and debasing currency. Um, that's an incredible privilege that they have wrested away from society over the last 100 years, 200 years. Uh, they're not going to give that up. They're not just going to be like, okay, well, we'll just use Bitcoin now, which we can't print anymore. The government would not permit it. The government requires that it can print its own money so that it can pay for whatever it wants with debased currency. Um, that's not going to happen easily. Maybe it'll happen, and, and that would be incredible, but um, I don't see it being welcomed. Regarding, um, regarding uh, digital assets uh, further, then, uh, if it's not central banks, how do you see the rest of the, you know, the, the traditional... Uh, the stores of value or instruments of uh, investment, stocks, bonds, other uh, sort of ways that you need to invest your, your cash to stay ahead of, of central bank inflation. How do you see digital assets going forward competing with uh, the rest of the, that analog world? Yeah, so I think um, we're, we're living through the digitization of finance and Bitcoin showed how that can be done with money narrowly, um, but tokens, and digital assets more broadly and blockchains more broadly have demonstrated that really anything of value can and, and maybe should be tokenized. So, uh, and that was sort of the, the core thesis of Shapeshift when, when I started it was that all forms of value or, or most forms of value were going to become tokenized because when you can have a token, uh, ownership is known and provable. Transfer can happen between any two people anywhere in the world without any friction. And it's immediately liquid. Those three things are, I think, insurmountable. And uh, the economic efficiency that you get from having tokenized assets ultimately will make them inevitable. Um, so that's, that's fantastic. So, I mean, it, there's always going to be stocks. There's always going to be bonds. Those are important financial instruments. There's, there's always going to be many kinds of different financial derivatives. Those are all very important. But they will be represented no longer by um, just sort of a, a, a paper contract or a, a database entry in some bank somewhere, but they will actually be tokenized where people possess them and own them and control them and uh, can move them around instantly anywhere. And a great example of, 
of why this is so cool is um, these, these token sales, I think, are going to demonstrate that um, when people invest in a project or a company, typically they, everyone's used to the fact that when you invest in a new company, you, you, your money is basically tied up for, for five or 10 years. And best case scenario, it's tied up during those years and then you get a big payout at the end. There's a huge inefficiency in that illiquidity during those early years. And uh, tokens are, are showing people that actually you can invest in a startup and you can cash out two months later if you don't like the project or if the project went up a lot and you want the money back. You, there's liquidity from the, the point of conception of the project all the way through um, forever after that. That's a huge advantage, a huge economic improvement in, in business relationships. And so even though the token and ICO market is in this crazy bubble right now, that, that principle and that means of funding uh, is gonna be enduring and really powerful. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that that is extremely important. Uh, and it's just something that the analog world cannot handle right now, whether you're talking about um, uh, some staking payments that might happen on, on Tezos or, or Ethereum once they, once they start or you know, a Dash masternode payment. Uh, the, these things can happen just as far as the interest. You, know, you talk about your money being tied up. You know, the, the interest could come weekly. It could come daily. It could come hourly. Mm -hmm. uh, it, is, it is truly incredible what you can do uh, in the crypto world. Yeah, and actually, so Salt is a great example of this. Uh, so with Salt, they are, to my knowledge, the first lender in all of human history that will not care at all about the credit worthiness of the borrower. <laughs> I don't believe that's ever been true before. Because the digital assets that they hold as collateral are, are perfectly liquid um, and, and SALT possesses them, they don't care if you ever pay your loan back. They don't care who you are or how likely you are to pay your loan. And so this, this means that a, the concept of a credit score becomes totally irrelevant. Uh, this, this will help rich and poor alike this kind of um, advancement made possible by crypto. One, I guess just one question on the operations there, like what happens if say the loan is in euros and in, in euro terms, your collateral put up 10 grand in Bitcoin euros. And then if, after six months, uh, the borrower's collateral has fallen in half. Uh, he hasn't made his payments or whatnot. Is there, is there a next step that the lenders would take? Yeah, they the lender doesn't, let it get that far. So basically the loan has to be over collateralized. So if you borrow $100, you have to give them like $120 worth of Bitcoin. If the Bitcoin falls to, let's say $110, uh, you'll get a warning and say, hey, you need to put up more capital, which you can choose to do or not. And if it starts to fall toward 100 to par value, then it starts to be liquidated in all or in part. So th that means that the lender doesn't ever have to worry about you because, or the asset because they'll sell it before they start to lose money. And uh, if they do sell it, then the, the borrower never has to repay anything because they, they lost their collateral, they keep the fiat that they borrowed and everyone's happy. Wow, that is incredible. I didn't, I didn't think about the liquidation uh, preferences and processes there, um, but that, that's very interesting. Going back to your comment on the ICOs and the, 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 the importance of liquidity for both investors and core team developers or startups, entrepreneurs, what do you feel about, you know, I think just the, the biggest criticism as far as I can tell is, is there's, there is this mismatch as far as delivering on the product versus just getting all the money up front. Do you think that's just going to be solved over time with better sort of better policies, better standards? Have you seen any, have you seen any good practices that are really going to solve this problem? Um, it's not a problem that will ever be solved. Uh, 
it's something I think that people will get better at and they will get more disciplined in where they're investing. Like right now, it's just this crazy bubble where almost anyone with a token sale can raise millions of dollars and, and people just don't care. Um, that bubble will pop and people will get cooler heads again and they will start to be more diligent in what they invest in. And just through that market process, um, you, will, you will find a new equilibrium where uh, you'll, you'll raise more money to the extent that you demonstrate competency over time. Um, but, you know, and there's always going to be people that, that basically try to raise money without having done anything. And they, they should be allowed to try that. You know, as long as they're not defrauding people, they should be allowed to try that and, uh, and see if they can actually convince funders to fund them. And then you know, they can deliver and the reputation of those people will go on to their next project and, and so on. Um, so it's, it's a process that the market will, will take care of with time. But you know, certainly uh, due diligence is not, um, not really being done today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to say the least. But I, I mean, I certainly agree with you. I, 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 I can't challenge you on that point. I think that uh, standards, markets, um, uh, good, good, uh, good policies, good, good practice, good governance that, that will be rewarded over time and people will figure it out. <laughs> I was just thinking about this due diligence with ICOs and I was imagining here perhaps the norm today would be a due negligence. But it's the right opposite. <laughs> <laughs> but it will get better. Uh, I think we're we're all in agreement. It will get better, and and I absolutely agree with you, Eric. I think that the um, the access to liquidity and having the ability to call that capital if something doesn't look right is just something that, as you said, with salt. I mean, it's just something, and I think we've seen it with other interest payments on on some cryptocurrencies. Like we've just never seen, we've just never seen these efficiencies before. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's it's very exciting, and analog finance just has no chance of remaining. Just like just like mail and physical letters, you know, they've lingered on for a long time. But ninety nine point nine percent of all the you know communications between people is happening with with email now, um, because it was just so much faster and easier and simpler than sending a physical message, sending an analog message. Do, do you see banks as the post office then, or do you think that banks will adapt and will get into the game quick enough to, you know, because, I mean, it's not like lending is going to go away. I mean, no, people, of course not. you know, whether, whether it's salt, salt based lending is, is the one that prevails or, or some sort of more value add that traditional financial services. Uh, do, do you have a prediction on how, you know, how banks will continue? Yeah, so they're, I don't think they're going to be one monolithic group. So, some banks are really looking into this stuff and they are going to adapt their business models and change. And some of them could become more powerful than they are today because they actually realize that this is an incredible new tool and they'll figure out interesting ways to use it. Some banks will stagnate um, and some banks will, will yeah, be destroyed by this stuff. Just as you know, media companies went through this process in the 90s as the, as the web came out, some media companies seized on that and became very powerful uh, with their web presence and they're stronger after that revolution than they were prior. Other media companies were totally destroyed um, and, and lots of cases in between. So banks will do a lot of things. Uh, we'll see what central banks do. That Those are the ones I'm hoping really get destroyed because they do not provide any useful service for mankind whatsoever and they are the, the worst fraud of all time. Eric, last question I have for you uh, regarding um sort of the future of, of digital uh, cash or um, who do you think is going to decide in the future uh, what is uh, 
what is the the proper brand of some of these coins. We've seen this challenged, uh, I think, in especially with this airdrop of this altcoin, Bitcoin Cash. Some are trying to call it Bcash. People are competing over the logos. Uh, people are, as usual, getting into the insiders are getting into arguments about this stuff. In the future, do you think that it's just going to be the merchants uh, that are going to decide that, whatever they call it, or is it going to be the users, the miners? Again, is there a is there an ultimate arbiter here on who determines what a Bitcoin is if we have more forks? Uh, it's just it's just a, a matter of emergent order. So no one decided how language is used, for example. Um, it emerges, and some people disagree about how a certain word should be used or there have been contentions, but over time, uh, clear meaning emerges through language. This is very similar. Over time, what things are called, how they're referred to, how they're considered will emerge over time. It does not need some central body to say this is Bitcoin and this is not. Uh, every individual has their own opinions on it and the, the actual order will come out, of, uh, come out of the marketplace of competing ideas over time. So it doesn't concern me. Eric, if people would like to find out more about what you do or how to uh, work with you or uh, take advantage of some of the services you offer, where should they go? Um, anyone can follow me on Twitter. It's at Eric Voorhees, E-R-I-K-V-O-O-R-H-E-E-S. Or, uh, of course, uh, Shapeshift. You can sign up for our, our newsletter and update there. And um, those are probably the best ways. Well, uh, commend you on your success in the crypto space. Wish you all the best in the future. And uh, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great talking to you, Eric. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much, guys.